This is your host, Casey DeShock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There, you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at alaskaconversations.com. Hello, welcome to Alaska Conversations. This is episode 14, and my guest today is Ed King with King Economics Group. Ed has served in various economics roles, including the chief economist for the state of Alaska, and this is his second appearance on Alaska Conversations. Today, we're going to be talking about monetary policy, stimulus, and what it all means for the Alaska economy. Welcome to Alaska Conversations. Hey, thanks, Casey. Yeah, so a lot has changed since the last time that we talked. The last time that we talked, we were at episode six of Alaska Conversations, and we were talking about economic models and predictions for for Alaska's future. One of the things that we did mention during that show is that it's very difficult to predict the future, and that is playing out right now. Yeah, indeed. Just over the last few weeks, the whole world has has really changed, um, and, and we have to adjust accordingly, of course. Well, and when I started Alaska Conversations, one of the things I de- decided early on was that I didn't, I wasn't really interested in doing topics that were only relevant for one week. And because of that, I also said that I wasn't going to be having elected officials, legislators, people on the show like that. But one disclaimer is you have filed a letter of intent to run for district. 34, which is in Southeast, I believe, Juneau District, and you're running as an independent or potentially running as an independent? Yeah, I kind of threw my name in the in the hat and ring, or, or, or however you say it, um, out here in the Minnehaha Valley at Juneau. Um, so I'm not committed, or I'm not really here to talk about the potential of my candidacy, but um, yeah, just it's good to have that disclosure out there. And so in, when you filed a letter of intent, it doesn't mean necessarily just so that people understand how the process works for anybody that's determining that they're going to run for anything. You have your two parties, Republican, Democrat. They can go through a primary process. You're choosing to run as an independent, which means you file a letter of intent and then you have to get signatures, something like that, in order to appear on the ballot. Yeah, um, I, I'm not part of a political party, and I'm not going to have the backing of one. Um, you know, it's just that's part of the problem. I think is is the political divide. It, it creates a lot of difficulties in getting things accomplished. So, um, you know, I'm I'm going to try to run without the support of a party, um, which means that I have to prove that I have support another way. Um, the way that you do that as an independent is to just collect signatures uh, that shows that you have at least some backing. Um, so yeah, I'll, if I if I move forward. Uh, I'll, I'll have to go through that process, but that's, that's down the road. Oh, good luck. But uh, um, so if if we're going to try to understand the world around us, uh, a lot of things are happening really fast. And so I think it's important to look at the bigger picture, starting with the macro, at least 
nationwide what's going on that's grabbing a lot of attention right now, how that applies to Alaska. So at least tangentially, people are are related or at least have some understanding of the Great Depression, 1929, and the Great Recession, 2008-2009. People have some understanding of that. One of the one of the important things to keep in mind is that if you talk to two economists or you talk to two business people, they're going to have a different uh, outtake or outlook on what exactly caused the problem. And a lot of that has to do with your basically your prior, what you're preconceived to believe going into that event. But if you look at 1929, 2008, you had basically a very... Uh, or a more rapid contraction of the national economy, right? I mean, that's essentially what happened. Yeah, so in in pretty much every major recession, or pretty much every recession, what you have is is a rapid amount of growth that turns out to be unsustainable, and then a correction back to a level that is more sustainable. Usually it's an overcorrection, and then it comes back up. Um, We saw that, you know, of course, in like you said, the Great Depression, and in 2008-9, um, but in other times as well, we're, we're starting to see that happening now. What what may be um, a, what the markets may be revealing as the last 10 years of of economic expansion might have exceeded our ability to sustain that growth. So um, it's starting to look like we're getting into a, a period where that contraction is happening. We're right at the very front end of it though there's not even enough data to confirm that we're actually in a in anything but a market correction right now um but it's gonna be interesting to watch and banks banks have so banks are the the driver of the of the economy if you will banks are going to be taking in deposits they're loaning them out to individuals business owners to expand their business and what you're saying when you say that we're growing at a rate faster than what is sustainable. If you if while you're listening, if banks are loaning an un, an unsustainable amount of money, or people are investing because there is perceived demand for goods that isn't really sustainable, you can for a while be producing more than than what people are going to be able to buy. And so, banks banks are are driving all of this. And when you have a contraction, essentially. There's not as much money coming into the bank, maybe, and banks are not loaning it out to the businesses. B- businesses aren't asking for money to expand their capacity, essentially. And that's what happened in 1929. It's what happened in 2008. So that's basically where we're at. This seems to me to be completely different because it doesn't really have, or maybe you have seen it a different way, but it it's not really the fact that we're contracting because there's a change in, in demand, if you will. Uh, so what's happening right now is, there, is, is definitely the case that demand has been reduced by the fact that people aren't out spending money. So that's definitely what's going on right now. Is, you know, People are staying home. People are scared. People are losing their jobs. Um, people are saving money rather than spending it. And all of that means that the flow of money is slowing down, which means that the economy is slowing down. Uh, what I think what you're saying is different is we're not quite sure is, is this a temporary reduction in demand because of what's going on? Or is there something bigger under some bigger undercurrent that was 
going on. And then this just triggered uh, that reduction, that correction back to some other sustainable level. So when we look at, uh, you know, for example, the unemployment rate for the last couple of years has been well below what we would have normally considered to be the natural rate of unemployment. Um, and you can't sustain a, a, a level of economic activity that's beyond the natural rate of output for very long. And that's, so that's why I think over the next several months, we're going to find out whether what we're seeing right now is just something temporary or if it's signaling a change to something bigger that's going on. And when you talk about the natural rate of unemployment for somebody who's, who's not looking at this all the time as an economist, you're, you're going to always have, and it's very easy for people to figure out that you're always, it's almost like musical chairs, you know, there's, there, there needs to be a certain number of people that are seeking work in order to get higher wages, in order to be a better fit for their company, then like you're never going to hit zero because if you had zero unemployment, that would be bad for, that would actually be bad for the economy because you would have nobody to step in, fill in, no ability to expand. And you'd probably have mismatches in productivity between employees and employers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the shallower the applicant pool is for a job, the more, uh, the harder it is to find somebody that is a good fit for that job. So you're always you're always looking for at least a couple of people. You know, a, a handful of the of the of the workforce needs to be looking for another opportunity in order for the economy to continue to innovate and grow and change. If you had zero unemployment, then there would be no new businesses because you wouldn't be able to find any new employees. There'd be no uh, opportunities for anybody to to move from job to job. Um, so the natural rate of unemployment just kind of acknowledges the fact that there's this constant churn, which is good for the economy, um, that allows the economy to grow. Uh, and, and too low of an unemployment rate is actually kind of bad because it drives up wages to an unsustainable level. It creates this competition for employment um, that drives business costs up to a level that they can't continue to perform. Um, and so whenever you have a really low unemployment rate, it kind of raises a, 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 a red flag or, or sounds a warning bell that you might be producing at a level that's not sustainable. That, and we've had this, this low unemployment rate. So when the contraction happens in a normal recession, or if you look back uh, 1929, 2008, in a normal contraction, um, banks stop lending. And a lot of that has to do, and we won't go into whether or not they can loan based on the reserve requirements, etc. But banks stop lending and consumers stop looking for uh, chances to expand and take out loans. And so what can happen is we have a Federal Reserve, and a lot of people are confused about what it is that the Federal Reserve does, how monetary policy works uh, at a national level, but you can lower the Fed fund rate, which allows banks to loan back and forth to each other at a certain rate, which makes it more attractive for them to lend. And you can put money into people's pockets or you can put money into businesses to try to spur more economic activity. That's generally what expansionary policy pursues, right? Uh, yeah, that's, I, I think all of that is, is accurate. Um, you know, the interest rate is a reflection of the market for saving. Uh, the higher the interest rate is, the more you want to save money so that you can take advantage of the interest rate. The lower the interest rate is, the less you want to save. So it encourages you to spend your money rather than saving it. And on the demand side as well. 
the higher the interest rate is, the less I'm going to borrow, the lower the interest rate is, the more I'm going to borrow. And so there's, there's that market for loanable funds that is driven by the interest rate. Um, and, and the more money that's loaned out, the more money is circulating in the economy. You're actually, whenever you loan money, you're actually taking future money and bringing it into the present. And as long as the, everything works out the way that it's anticipated to, those future dollars will just pay back that loan and, and everything will be fine. The problem comes when you loan out money and then it turns out that those future funds weren't actually available. You lended the money, you lent that money based on something that was an unrealistic expectation. And then when those loans default, it pulls money out of the economy and everything slows down. If it can get really bad, like in 2008 or so with the subprime lending, where a lot of money was went to people that couldn't didn't have the ability to pay it back it can actually freeze up the entire market for credit and that's that's why the great recession was so bad i don't think we're quite in that same position today but you know we'll we'll find out and so when what what's happening now is you have the in large part, the federal government and state governments and local municipalities are saying, look, you cannot go out. You have to have your business closed, which I think is unprecedented in modern history uh, on the scale that we're talking about. Of course, if you look back, you can go back, look at 1918 pandemic, other inst- other instances where you had uh, people shut down businesses in or- for the community, even – uh, H1N1, you had school districts in Texas, other areas where where there was large amount of people that had the virus that were closing down, but nothing on this national scale. And so this is, to me, more akin to what happened right after September 11th with the airlines. And so you could, in that instance, you could go and bail out the airlines and say, look, we're going to give you some money just to make it through this, and then things are going to return to normal. The difference uh, that I'm seeing right now is that a couple weeks after, a couple weeks after uh, the te- a terrorist attack, you can look in, you can look at your expected outcomes of what's going to happen, and you can say, okay, there's a one percent chance that they're going to crash my plane just making up numbers and a 99% chance that I'm going to have a great mm-hmm. vacation. And so people knowingly or unknowingly weigh the weigh the risks and business returns back to normal. In this case, whether true or not, the perception is that if we go back to normal, there's a 60% chance that I have coronavirus and I pass it on to my grandparents or parents and a 40% chance that I don't. So this is a, a lot different when we weigh the, the risks to individuals. Oh, okay. Was there a question there? I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, if I'm if I'm going to make the question, it's so if if we're using federal dollars to stimulate or even just to prop up businesses, um, if you look at 2001, there was a very clear, defined. Okay, I can see where if we can make it through the next couple of weeks, people are going to go back to normal. What I worry about on this particular instance is that we're not going to go back to normal right away. And so the policies that we're pursuing are going to are much more difficult in what they can produce because if you're going to bail out a restaurant today, 
two weeks from now, we're not going back to normal restaurant behavior. And that is, that's a larger problem than what we're giving it credit for. Yeah, the, the longer that all of this goes on, the, the more damage it's going to do. Of course, there's this, this trade-off uh, between protecting public health and protecting economic health um, that, that we're kind of going through. And, and definitely everyone is um, very interested in protecting public health. Uh, so it, it probably is going to go on for, for quite a while, at, at the very least, you know, a couple more weeks, um, but probably maybe even a couple more months. Um, so it, it is it is going to get back to normal. Of, of course, eventually it will. Uh, we just don't know how long that that's going to take. Um, and when things do open back up and the economy starts to try to uh, crawl back out, we just we need to make sure that people have the means uh, to go back to work. So there's a there's a work to go back to. Um, and there's a means to go ahead and, and engage in the economy. So you have to have some kind of if you're if everybody's losing their wages for the next several months, when the economy does open back up, nobody will have any money to go out and spend. Um, and so that's where the concern about the long term ramifications about you know what's going on now, how that's going to impact the economy going forward. The economic ramifications are probably going to last a lot longer than the viral ones. Um, and that's that's why it's really, uh, you know, that's why we're seeing many different countries and governments um, trying to provide the means for people to to maintain their their jobs. So, you know, helping the businesses stay open so that there's a job to go back to, um, and helping people be able to pay their bills, and so that they're not in a desperate situation when the economy does open back up, they are able to engage in it. On on the show, we're all always trying to introduce other ideas just some topics that wouldn't come up in normal conversation so when money is being distributed to people and in alaska we're looking at potentially two different payments of the permanent fund dividend etc when money's being distributed to people there are there is the propensity for somebody to consume it or the propensity for somebody to save it. And depending on whether or not somebody's going to spend those dollars or whether or not somebody's going to save those dollars, that makes a difference to the economy as well, wouldn't it? And and what do those two terms mean when people are thinking thinking through that when you look at uh, income distribution? So why a $1,000 check is different for somebody who makes $500,000 a year compared to somebody who makes $40,000 a year? Yeah, and, and before I, I answer that question, I'd also just point out that it matters what your objective is as as the government. If you're trying to if you're trying to inject money into the economy for the purpose of economic stimulus, that's different than if you're trying to distribute money because it belongs to the people. And so if there's if there's a public if there's a, a social aspect to what you're trying to accomplish, that drives you to a different conclusion. Um so in the current situation where we're talking about helping the economy get through this low point that's different than distributing your your pfd in october um but it does have that same the both both of those impacts uh, are relevant so to answer your question about propensities um you can just think just just have that mental image when you say somebody lives paycheck to paycheck you know and that's that's a lot of people that live paycheck to paycheck means that as soon as they get paid all of the money that they get paid gets spent before they get paid again. 
So they're not saving anything. They might actually even be putting money on credit card or taking out loans. They might be spending more money than they're making. Um, in that case, their propensity to consume is 100% or maybe even more. They're spending every dollar that comes their way just to make ends meet. That's very different than somebody that makes you know a million dollars a year. They're probably not spending a million dollars a year. And so when you give somebody that's already not spending all of their money, even more money, it's probably not going to enter the economy in the same kind of way. And that's where you have uh, the determination that, okay, well, we're going to give this money in a stimulus check to people, individuals that make $75,000 a year or families that make $150,000 a year. You can, you can argue whether or not um, that's the best means to do it, but uh, one thing to keep in mind when you look at the federal policy and the stimulus checks is that what you're doing is you are um, what you're doing is you're trying to hit the people that are going to spend the money right away, and that's going to have the better economic impact. When we look at what's going on in Alaska, you also have people that are losing uh, work, and you have probably seen this. Plenty, Ed, but Alaska has an extremely large percentage of our population that works in the retail service sector. I don't know if that's compared to other states. I'm just, for us, a, a large portion of our population is employed exactly in the industries that are being hit right now. Is that true? Yeah, that is true. The, the retail and, and service industries are, are the largest industries in the state. Um, they're usually not we don't usually pay as much attention to them because they tend to be uh, lower paying jobs. So the jobs are, are worth less in terms of wages than the higher paying jobs like in oil and, and in mining and, and some of the others. Um, but in terms of the number of people that are employed in those sectors, the, those sectors that are being impacted the most right now are the largest part of our population. Um, and so when we're talking about giving people money, whether it's through the federal government program or whether it's through the state state government pro, um, bill that's being debated right now, and um, one of the things that, that, needs, that they're considering is what's that money going to do? And for right now, when people are out of work, that money is replacing wages that they're losing. So it's just enabling them to continue the same level of spending that they would have been already spending it's not it's not trying to encourage additional spending and so it's, it's just trying to prevent that recession from being as deep by allowing people to maintain their same level of spending that they've become accustomed to and that's i think really the difference in the way that you approach you know a, a, an income limit on on where you're helping the higher the income level that you make the more likely you are to have some savings, and uh, some ability to absorb those lost wages. When, and so when we look at the, uh, the permanent fund dividend, it's often looked at as, a, as in addition to our wages. And so they're, they're rightfully, people can make the argument. Whether they're right or wrong, I don't know. But it is um, frequently, uh, frequently the point is made that when we give a permanent fund dividend out to individuals, um, because it's in, in addition to their wages, it's spent differently than the first $75,000 that they make in a given year. And so the, the permanent fund dividend may, might not have the same economic impact as what, it, what you think of if you use the same, the, 
the same model, same multiplier for the for the wages that the person makes over the given year. In this case, we're replacing that income, and so this is this permanent fund dividend or this COVID stimulus check is going to be spent differently and therefore is going to have a greater impact on the Alaska economy than what we would normally see on a normal October check, right? Yeah, to the extent that people spend their normal income in Alaska, this payment, this distribution that we're talking about now is going to be, it's going to help people maintain that same level of spending. So that's going to help whatever businesses that are being negatively impacted right now, it's going to help maintain them. And, and like you said, in a normal year where it's, it's a one-time check on top of your regular salary, not replacing your income, but in addition to it, then people approach that money differently um, because it, it feels like a windfall. And so people are more likely to spend that money on things that they wouldn't normally buy with their income, with their normal income. Um, and the more money that you make, the more that that's going to be true. Uh, but with the permanent fund dividend, you know, if that's a distribution to all Alaskans, um, not because we're trying to stimulate the economy or not because we're trying to alleviate poverty, but those are positive impacts that happen from it. But that's not the objective of the, the normal PSD. So when we're talking about the stimulus check, it's very different than the permanent fund distribution. That's, yeah, that's a great point to, to keep in mind as we continue as we continue on the conversation about what we're going to do with this Alaska economy because now moving keeping the what we've talked about now the propensities of individuals um, what what uh, expansion what happens to an economy as it's growing let's say the Alaska economy was it hasn't been growing but all of the things said right now we have businesses that are that are closing their doors and struggling they will be struggling to make payments and employees in mass are going to be moving on to unemployment rolls. I don't have, you know, I don't know what that's going to look like two or three weeks from now, but we went from, we went from like 250,000 claims nationwide to 3.2 million. You're looking at Alaska going up like 10, 10 times, tenfold in our unemployment number. So a lot of people are moving from their employers to unemployment one uh, struggle is going to be, or do you see it being a possible struggle, bringing those employees back to their same employers when this is all done? Yeah, the, the challenge is going to be that they, they have to have a job to go back to. And that's why these whole conversations about, uh, quote unquote, bailing out the businesses are really important. Because if a business goes bankrupt, then jobs go away, and then we have all of these unemployed people that, you know, we have more people that are looking for work than there's work available. That just spins off a whole different problem. Um, and so, so these unemployment claims, as long as they're just temporary unemployment, and then when, when all of this is over and we're allowed to go back out of our houses and, and enter the economy, as long as we're able to do that and those jobs are still available, then the unemployment rate or the, the number of unemployment claims uh, should return back down to normal. Um, I can tell you that a lot of businesses can't survive even a couple, of, even one week of making zero revenue. Um, and so a lot of businesses are going to go bankrupt. And so there are going to be a lot of jobs that are not available that were available just a month ago. Um, and that's going to be a really big challenge. Uh, so the only way that, that we can deal with that is we have to stabilize the economy and allow people to get back out there, allow entrepreneurs and investors to feel comfortable and confident enough in the economy 
that they're willing to invest in it. You have a t-shirt company in Juno, let's say, and just to use the example, under a, under a normal circumstance, if you have a, a t-shirt company that sells to tourists that come through and they make enough money during during the tourist season in order to sustain themselves, if they are if they have poor business practices and they go out of business, there's generally a Casey sitting there knowing the business and going in and purchasing either uh, their assets or or filling the void because and because that's generally how the the market works. So if somebody goes out of business and somebody comes in and and uh, replaces that business. A lot of times that's how it works. Now you're doing double. You're going to be having some small businesses in the state of Alaska, more small businesses going out of business than there are people willing to step up and fill those shoes. And the reason that that would happen is I would think that no evidence for this, you'd have to tell me if you've ever ran across this, but I would think that the uh, basically the confidence in the economy is going to take a while to rebound. Do you think that the confidence in the economy will take a while before people are saying, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to go open up this new brewery? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly going to be the case. Anybody that had plans to open a business is going to run into, you know, a, a challenge finding money for one um, and then finding a way to make money for another. Uh, I think certain areas and certain regions are going to be impacted more than others. Uh, for example, Southeast Alaska, with a basically a zero tourist season, is going to have a much more difficult time stabilizing our economy than, you know, um, like a Fairbanks, which should just rebound once everything opens back up. Um you know, at least stabilize and then start to grow again. So it, it really is regionally dependent. Uh, but yeah, in, in general, uh, your point is right that these these impacts that we're that we're feeling right now they're going to remain for a long time. And when you have like like your example with the t-shirt company, you know, if, if they go a summer without any sales, well, that means that they don't have to buy inventory. So whoever they were buying inventory from uh, is also being impacted, and whoever that company you know, their employees are impacted and wherever those employees were sending their money is also impacted. And those those impacts, they ripple through the entire economy and it takes a long time for those ripples to finally, you know, fade away. Something else for people to keep in mind is they look at the, the collapse in the, in the S&P, they look at this spike in unemployment. When this happened, if we go back to 1929, because I, it's just one of my most interesting Examples. I like to look at it because you have different of opinions on what exactly happened, and people are constantly rewriting the history of that. Um, and Amity Schlaes has a great book called The Forgotten Man. For anybody that wants to read it, it's a little bit dated now, but it's it's a great book to read. Um, so one of, one of the problems is is that when when the depression kicked off in 1929, we didn't see the full impacts until like 1934. Or I believe was the bottom of that market. That took five years of negative GDP, of unemployment slowly growing, and for those ripple effects that you're talking about to to happen. So some people would use the very common example: the T-shirt company in Juno doesn't have sales this summer, and so you don't put your child in piano lessons, and so all of these small little pieces slowly start to fall apart. These things don't happen overnight. The first thing is going to be directly the businesses. And after that, 
the slow ripple effect starts to take place. Another thing I'm worried about, not sure what you think on this one, is that I don't even know if this is really, if economics is something that covers this, but you have, there's always these catalysts. So if you're 62 years old and, um, and you get a new boss and you just hate your new boss, it can be a catalyst for you to say, okay, I'm done with, I'm done with this work. And maybe you retire a year early if you have the potential. Well, this for anybody who really didn't like their job or any employees that were just marginal, they were maybe the worst employees out of their lot of 10 people that they worked with. Employers now have a catalyst to trim the number of people that they have working for them. And employees have a reason to go and pursue something else, which is going to cause a lot of turn and may create a lot of matching problems for businesses. It's not as if you turn the switch and tomorrow you're going to have the A team back in your business. That's another worry that I have. Yeah, I, I would uh, I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, businesses are going to have to trim back. We saw this. It was a really, really good example in the 2008 recession uh, when when businesses had to trim way back. Uh, of course, they kept their best employees and, and let everyone else go. But then, as the economy started to recover, we saw that the the number of sales was increasing, but the number of jobs really wasn't, and then the number of uh, and the rate of pay for jobs wasn't increasing. It took a really long time, and we called it a jobless recovery. I mean, what was going on is that businesses became able to adapt to the new circumstances. They, they, they figured out how to do business with less employees and with lower costs. And so when the economy started to recover, those improved processes didn't go away. We didn't revert back to where, you know, the way things were being done before the recession hit. So you're going to see the same thing happen now. If a lot of people start to get laid off and businesses start to learn how to how to uh, operate in a different way, whether that means, you know, if, if everybody working from home um, kicks off this whole momentum that working from home is actually a really viable and, and more cost-effective way to do business, that's probably a permanent change. And so we're, we're probably going to see, you know, that kind of change in, in business behaviors happening throughout the entire economy. You're right. Also, you know, people that are, that were close to retirement might decide that it's time to retire. Um, you know, of course, what just happened to everyone's retirement accounts and pensions might right. complicate that decision. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, but yeah, every time that a circumstance changes, everybody has to adapt to those new circumstances. And it's going to create something very different than um, what we've seen in the past. We, you should not expect that when the switch flips, that everything just goes back to normal. That's probably not what's going to happen. You you made a, a great point about the working from home. It's something that's really interesting to me. So if, if you take a business five months ago, um, I have worked in industries where it was acceptable to work from home most of the time or some of the time. Uh, it didn't make a big difference. If if it was earthquake day in in Anchorage and you couldn't get in to Anchorage or travel, Nothing had to stop because you could work from home if you needed to, log in, use your VPN, remote server, etc., and you can get everything done that you need to get done. The problem is some of that takes an investment into the infrastructure for people to have home like home offices so that they can be as productive, and people haven't made the adjustments. Now we're having, number one, no schools to watch the kids, no schools to take 
kids off of anybody's hands. Plus a increase in the supply of home office equipment and capacity for people to do it. People are building that out right now. So it really may not make sense for a lot of these businesses to ever return to paying uh, paying for office space. And I believe that Anchorage has kind of a shared workspace area. Uh, I can't remember what it's what it's called, but they're they're popping up all over the place where you can have when you have team meetings and etc. You can go in, r- rent the place for two or three weeks, and then you're done. And that's some large overhead costs that are eliminated. Problem with that, yeah, yeah. Problem with that is that you have a lot of investment in commercial real estate that may take a hit from that. As you said, these ripple effects go for a long, long time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of times, you know, drawing the dots is, or connecting the dots is really difficult to to do as as we're looking forward. And then they're very obvious when we look backwards. Um, so we, I, I, I can't sit here today and say how things are going to turn out, but uh, I can say that if, if people were were right on the fence about being able to work on home and not really sure if they could, that question has been answered now. Um, and if companies were right on the edge of building out the infrastructure to allow people to work at home, a lot of that, uh, you know, a lot of that coding or a lot of that uh, investment is happening right now, and so it's going to have a it's going to have an impact. And then, yeah, what what are the the rest of the impacts going to be? Uh, it's going to be really interesting to see. Um, but yeah, we're we're delivering education distantly uh, through distance um, learning programs. We're uh, increasing the amount of retail that we're doing online. We're um, changing the way that we communicate with one another. Uh, and and it's going to be really interesting to me to see how many of those changes and behaviors um, really expose the fact that they are are viable and possible, um, and how many of those changes stick. So I I think there's a lot of things that are uh, are going to surprise us going forward and be very obvious when we look back. When I was I was talking to my brother last night, my and I said this in on the last show, episode thirteen. I was talking about my one of my brothers lives in Shandong Province. Uh, in China. And he's been talking to me about this whole thing since December and he's in education. And uh, when we were talking last night, he said he does online education delivery. Same, same thing there teaches English in China. And it is becoming increasingly hard for him to remember what it was like to go to the brick and mortar location. Everything feels normal. Now the, the distance education is just, that's the, that's the normal world. As you were saying, that has, some large implications because right now I live off of the road system. You live at least you have a ferry, but generally off of the road system. Um, schools were, it was very difficult for schools to think about, okay, what, what are we going to do with our internet? Our internet capacity is not as great. And that is being addressed right now. And, and that can have, large impacts because we're looking at what may probably just canceling this school year. That's a long time. And that's a lot of investment into new ways to deliver education that before this catalyst, we didn't even think that it was possible. Yeah. And that's, that's generally true with anything, right? The status quo has a a really strong resistance to change, just not just in government or, but in business or in life. 
um, it's it's really easy to keep doing things the way you've always done them until something forces you out of your comfort zone. Um, and then once you've changed your behavior, it becomes normal, and then it's really hard to go back. Um, and we've seen that. You probably, I mean, we've we've seen that in many ways with technology and in just our lifetime. Um, even if you might not realize it, uh, it's it's happening, right? Like everything that was unimaginable in the past is just so convenient and normal now. Um, so it is going to be interesting, and I, you know, I don't, I don't know if that means that that it's going to make substantial changes or not to that to the way we do things, but it, it will uh, expose the fact that we can do things differently, and maybe that will drive some change. Well, I want to save the handshake. I hope that the handshake actually survives this whole thing. It, it might not. Uh, some people are talking about, you know, maybe the handshake is done forever. I hope that we maintain that. But um, one, so one thing that's being completely overshadowed by this entire crisis is the absolute collapse in the price of oil and what that means for Alaska. So right now we are, uh, Brent crude is trading at $24. Let's just say Alaska North Slope is at $25 a barrel right now. That is a, that is a significant drop in oil prices and that is really going to hurt Alaska. So do you see, or, or is this even an area where is, is this a new normal for prices? Is this way oversold? It's hard to make a prediction on oil prices, but uh, what, what are you feeling about oil right now in our price levels? Yeah. So $25 a barrel, uh, subtract $10 to get it from the North slope to California refinery. Um, and then subtract, you know, at least $13 to get the oil out of the ground and into the pipeline. All of a sudden, oil is not making any real money. And then you have to pay royalties and taxes on top of that. And, and you can see really quickly that even without spending a penny on capital improvements, you can't sustain that for very long. And you look at you look at the lower 48 in Texas or North Dakota, you see that same kind of thing. It's really capital intensive. It requires a constant reinvestment of money in order to keep that going. And there's just no money, right? You're spending every penny just keeping the, the current oil flowing. You can't spend any money getting new resources developed. Uh, and that's going to have a repercussion. There's going to be businesses that go out of business. There's going to be resources that get shut down and shut in, probably become stranded until oil prices go up higher. Um, but right now, oil companies have $0 to invest in capital. And that is going to mean that a lot of the um, investments that need to happen to maintain just flat production aren't going to happen. Uh, so oil production is going to, to decline, um, not just in Alaska, but throughout the entire world. Canada will probably go get hit really, really hard by all of this. Um, and even some shale producers are cash flow negative um, at, at this price. So you're going to see a lot of production stop. And when that production stops, that's what allows the price to start to recover. So you get you you have that. Uh, the prices are temporary. We're, we're in a disequilibrium right now, right? Prices are below what the market can sustain. So the only way that you can recover um, back to an equilibrium level is production and supply has to slow down well, and, and we're going to see it. And so we are right now, uh, the demand for oil has dropped. I was looking at EIA uh, reports. Demand has dropped. Some people are predicting by 20 million barrels globally a day. Um, we, we can't turn off production tomorrow 
because uh, a lot of those investments have already been been made and of course you're going to see a curtailment of exploration but it's not as if we can go from producing 80 million barrels globally in a day to producing 60 million that's just not going to happen so we're going to have a large surplus in oil production for uh, until the global economy gets somewhat back to normal it doesn't even have to re- recover we could even be in a recession to where we're only producing a couple million barrels over the demand but right now we're 20 million that if that holds true every week we're adding 100 million barrels into uh into surplus into storage and that's going to take a long time for that to work its way out of the market um and so and and so because of that problem because of what's happening as far as air traffic etc this may be a little bit larger problem than it normally would be because demand wouldn't be dropping this wouldn't be dropping by 20 million barrels even if we you had a terrible terrible recession right yeah this this is very you know very strange world that we're in right now where we have both uh, uh, an increase in supply from Russia and Saudi Arabia as they're you know they're not willing to cut any further they're increasing supply and at the same time demand is being reduced because of the lack of travel so we're 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 seeing this gap um, get wider over the, the last couple of weeks where the uh, amount of oil that's being produced is far in excess of the amount that's, be, that's being demanded. Uh, and so if that were to remain, if, if that level of demand were to become the new normal, then yeah, that amount of supply would become the new normal as well. We would work our way down to that equilibrium. But that would mean that a lot of oil would have to come off the market in order to get there. And that, that would take a long time, but a lot of companies would go out of business and a lot of oil would end up staying in the ground. Um, and so that, that would suggest that prices would have to drop a considerable amount, like down into the teens, um, in order to get that much supply off the market so that only oil that's profitable at that level continues to be produced. I don't think that that's what's going to happen. I think that once you know we get to the point where we can travel again, that that demand will rebound and we'll get back to that uh, almost 100 million barrels a day um, that we typically demand. Uh, and over time, the price will eventually, uh, the, the supply glut will clear and the price will start to rebound. I actually think that once a lot of the current uh, situation is resolved, we'll actually see... OPEC and, and Russia and maybe even the United States, they're kind of in the top now too, uh, to come back together and, and make a, uh, a, a cut to production based on an agreement that will help the price of oil recover back into the you know, 50 or $60 range. But it is going to take a long time for that to clear. It's going to be at least a couple of years um, before we're back to the same level that started to become normal just you know a couple of months ago. Well, the so in Texas, just... In Texas, there's a railroad commission that that can exercise production caps. So, I mean that they don't they don't do that frequently, but those though they are considering, they have considered coming together and saying, "Look, the Permian Eagle Ford, you're not here's a cap on your production in order to sustain prices." But um, just some some numbers I did because it one thing I can guarantee you is that. Moving forward, we are going to continue to say that the oil companies need to pay more and 
that may be right or that may be wrong. That's not what I'm taking a position on. But you were just doing some numbers, and I'll throw some out there. If we say that it's $25 a barrel, and if this is where we stay for a while, $25 a barrel, we can start collecting money on the wellhead value, which is the price of oil minus the cost to get it to market, essentially. So going the tariff to go get down the pipeline, get to Valdez, and be sold. Uh, and I think, actually, part of our tariff is the transportation from Valdez by tanker to the West Coast. But I'm not sure about that. I would have to look and see if that's included in the tariff. But it's roughly $10 a barrel, as you said. And according to the reports, we are actually at 459,000 barrels a day right now. If that's the case, we can start collecting money on $15 a barrel, which when you do the math, if we had oil produced by robots without any overhead and no capital costs, we would be collecting, and we collected 100% of it as a state, we'd be collecting about $2.5 billion this year, which would be a 50% shortfall in our budget. Is that a significant problem? Is this a rainy day that we need to worry about, or do you think that we need to start looking at structurally? We just simply cannot offer the same services that we once did. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's really highlighting the fact that I, and, and you said it earlier that this whole thing that's going on with oil is probably in the shadows in a lot of people's minds, but it's actually the bigger problem. Um, at $20 a barrel, companies are losing money. At $30 a barrel, companies on the North Slope are losing money while they're paying taxes and royalties. They're only going to do that for so long before they say, uh, this just isn't worth it, and they're going to shut everything down. And then you get 100% of zero, it's still zero, right? So even, even, what's that? Which is great. 100% of zero is a lot better than than 12% of whatever, you know? 100% of zero is zero. (laughs) Getting zero is bad. Exactly, I'm Um, with you. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, we we've, we've been used to getting one or two billion dollars a year in, in oil revenues, and and it's just the numbers that you just did. If you if it's, so, we we charge our royalties, and we have a minimum tax that are based on the gross value, the value at the wellhead. It's it's about twelve and a half percent for royalties, and it's about four percent for taxes. So about sixteen percent, a little more than sixteen percent altogether. Um, we collect that now. So even at fifteen dollars a barrel at the wellhead, we're only getting. 16% of that money. And even if you did go to 50% or whatever number you want to, it's still not a ton of money compared to what we're used to. And and you can't just charge that much money and expect the companies to pay it and not shut down. Uh, eventually they will. Um, and so right now we're talking about companies losing money while the state is making a lot less money than they normally would, but still getting a positive value. Uh, I don't know how long that can last. And so oil prices have to recover. I, I expect that they will before the, the taps uh, shut down. Um, but it's something to worry about. If, if, if this $30 oil price is the new reality, we might not have any oil production five or 10 years from now. Well, and so one thing that's, that's also critical for people to, to pay attention to, I posted this just, I mean, even on Facebook or I've, I've, I've put this out there. This isn't a partisan this isn't a partisan cry for people to support a certain party, but um, you you have major major politicians that have said, um, "Look, we're not we are going to move towards no more drilling on federal land. Not a big deal in the lower forty eight. 
Most of our new production is in NPRA. That is federal land. That is what is attracting new oil companies. A lot of our oil production potential is in Anwar. I don't think that Anwar attracts any companies because it's extremely expensive to develop, but that potential is there. We're not going on to state land right now and finding big, giant oil fields. A lot of this production is on federal land, and that's a huge risk to companies. It's a huge risk. And you also have a lot of uh, large financial institutions that are saying, look, we're not investing in the Arctic anymore. And that makes sense for those financial institutions because there's a huge risk. If we were producing 5 million barrels a day, that probably wouldn't happen. But we're producing a very small amount of oil on that North Slope. And people think that we're going to, that this is going to continue on forever. So everything's normal until COVID-19 comes and we change the way that we interact and the way that we work. Everything is normal until a company finally says it's not worth us to, to produce any more oil in Alaska and we strand all of our asses, assets on the North Slope, right? I, yeah, there's definitely a point where that's going to happen, where, where the companies say this isn't worth the money and effort and, and uh, environmental risk and other things that, that play into a decision. Um, at right now, they don't have any money to spend on investment. Um, and even if oil prices do recover uh, up into the 40s or 50s or upway 60s, uh, you know, there's still not a whole lot of money um, to invest, but it, it, at least it's enough to make it attractive. But at some point, whether it's 10 years from now or 40 years from now, that pipeline's going to shut down. Um, and, and the only thing that can stop it from, or that can delay it from shutting down is allowing, uh, is, is the oil price being high enough that allows it to continue to make enough money to make sense for the companies. I mean, that's really where things start to get really, um, tenuous is that, uh, there's, there's a tension between how much money the oil company should be making and how much money the, the, the state should be taking. That's uh, a very contentious issue. Um, but the point, uh, the, the idea that the oil companies are just going to produce forever, even if they're not making money, is, is not consistent with reality. Uh, and that's why what we're what we're looking at right now with oil prices as low as they are, a lot of the developments, even in the NPRA, uh, we still charge taxes on, on oil that's produced in the NPRA or in Anwar. Um, we just don't get the royalty for it. But the, the economics still have to work. And right now with the economics not working and with the money not existing, a lot of the development that we saw coming on the horizon is now a lot fuzzier. Uh, and it's going to take a couple of more months of seeing what happens with oil prices before we really understand where things are heading. But we're already seeing companies pull back on their capital projects. Their capital budgets are smaller. Um, Conoco announced that. Oil Search announced that. Uh, and, and so we're, we're going to have to pay really close attention to whether or not we can keep that, uh, keep that development happening and moving forward. Um, and at the same time, you know, we, we need to also balance our state's budget, which becomes a lot more difficult. We, uh, if you go back in, in time, let's go 1976, 1977, I don't know if that's the exact years, but at the start of the pipeline, we had uh, ELF tax believe economic limit factor that's the tax that we that we had when we began on the on the north slope in production the idea behind that tax was in and uh communicated by jay hammond was that no oil well should shut down because it costs them more money to produce than they're paying in taxes essentially so we uh oil wells would get 
the cost of producing that oil for the day, that was tax-free. And then we taxed everything above that. Um, we've lost sight of, of that type of tax structure, and we've built out a, a different uh, requirements. There's different regulatory requirements. Everything's changed. So we're not returning to that, but I think that the same principle has to uh, apply, which was we shouldn't be collecting revenue. We shouldn't be lowering output because we need more rev- revenue. I think that that's a bad plan for the state to follow, and I think that that's the direction that we're headed. Um Maybe we're not headed that direction, but do you do you have any? You don't have to talk about the actual oil taxes, but there is there is the potential that we are actually it's that it's not even just the market prices of oil, which are a significant hurdle for companies, but that our tux, our tax structure can actually start to be the determining factor that that gets companies to divest from Alaska. Which I don't think we should pursue something that does that. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I can't, I can't tell you how to to vote on the initiative or, or how to feel about the oil companies, but but yes, um, the more money that you collect, it's, it's oil revenues. If you're only looking at what's being produced, the value of what's being produced is a pie. It's a zero sum game. The more the state takes, the less the companies get. The more the companies make in profit, the less the state gets. Zero sum. Uh, it's it's new investment that's positive sum, and so you have that trade off on how much do you let them keep in order to make it worth the investment that's where things start to get a little bit more uh, difficult to, to to track but the idea that uh, uh that we can take every penny from the oil companies and that they would continue to be happy to to just produce for free is, is not the way that things would work and and somewhere in the middle right there's that there's there, there there's those extremes and somewhere in the middle there's a sweet spot where the state gets as much as it can without impacting the um ability to invest more money uh if you increase taxes you're gonna have that money's coming from somewhere and when you take that opportunity away that's going to impact decisions that are happening in the boardrooms so it's it's really i mean it's 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 easy to say that um oil companies are agnostic about um, taxation but it's it's they don't care about the taxes so much they care about how much money they get to keep and if 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 we're not allowing them to make a return on investment that's consistent with or better than their alternative investments, then you're not going to attract those dollars. That's a very important point to make. And another thing to keep in mind is uh, because we're always trying to do every time that you listen to last conversations, you should be walking away with a, a new concept. If you study economics or it's something that you read about all the time, none of them are new concepts, but um, companies, companies are looking for, somewhat of an economic profit compared to what they could be doing. So it's not just that Alaska oil has to be, uh, has to be profitable. It's that Alaska oil has to be profitable in comparison to other fields that the company may be invested in. Right. Because they're yeah, not- you only- yeah, you can talk about that. There's, there's only so much money that you can invest. You need to invest that money. You kind of go down the list. You invest in the best project first and you go down that list until you run out of money. And so the question is, where is your project on that list? And the higher or the less of a return on investment that you're making, the lower down that list you go. And, and if there's not enough money in the capital budget to get down to you on that list, you don't get the investment. Now, and then just in, just to kind of wrap up our, our amount of time here, because we're, we're drawing to the end, but just a, a bonus question to talk about, 
is that in this time of crisis that we're going through, legitimate crisis that that we really, most of the people alive haven't seen, not everybody, but most of the people alive have not seen a reaction like this. What's funny is that we really lose sight of, of normal economics or in this crisis, I would say that most people believe, even though they, they probably don't have an understanding of, of basic economics, most people believe that they somewhat understand economics. In in a crisis, we always lose sight of that. So right now, I think, is, is a very good example of the demand for, let's say, masks is enormous. And because we're because the prices can't change and that's fine you you don't have to you don't have to be okay with with price gouging but because there's no price signal it's very hard to distribute resources in this type of environment and i think that's why i think i think that's why everything struggles so people would like to see the federal government be able to allocate resources really really efficiently but that's just not really that's just not how it's going to work and so that's a, a neat exercise in and seeing what happens when you remove price from a market. I, I think it should be a good example to people, but we will always forget. You know, we're going to remember this crisis much different than what's actually happening. Do you do you know what I mean by that? By saying, saying that we're going to remember this completely wrong, I guarantee that we remember this completely different than what's what's actually happening. Yeah, I mean, I think our memories are always fallible in that in that regard. So uh, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how we look back on history and you know, how how uh, how our future decisions are changed by uh, what we see happening today. And uh, there's nobody has a crystal ball on where things are going to head next. And um, I have no idea. I have no idea where it's going to where things are going to go. But uh, I can definitely agree with you that when we look back on this. Um, it's going to look different than what we are what we are observing in the real time. Well, and the the economists like you that are out there, and I'm sure that there's two sides of the the coin. But I'm trying. What I've been trying to understand is I have always had kind of an opinion that, and this is this is this is the end end of the show. But I've always had an opinion that we can't spend a whole bunch of money, and Economists can't go into a lab and, and have a bunch of rats and have the rats do a test and see how it is that they establish markets. It's very difficult to do that. So what you have to do is you have to take kind of a natural experiment, people would say. Okay, look at this happening. We have expanded our national debt by almost $20 trillion over the last 20 years, and really nothing has happened. I mean, maybe something has happened. Maybe I'm missing that. But... I think that there may be, maybe we're missing, maybe maybe we're just off on, on the implications of spending a whole bunch of money. Yeah, I, I, we, we can't, we, we only know what we've seen, um, and we can do you know, computer simulations, but it's still only as good as what we can program. Um, and so our understanding of how things work is, is constantly changing as we get new information. I should say we can explore natural experiments um, and, and try to understand what, the, what those experiments are telling us. But a lot of times we, we interpret them wrong. Um, and so everything that we think we know, I mean, we, we might not know as much as we think we do. 
Um, but yeah, the, the national debt is something that I think a lot of people are concerned about, and rightfully so. Uh, that money has to get repaid one way or another, either through future taxes or through inflation. That money is going to have to get um, reduced as it becomes more and more difficult to, to uh, borrow money. Um, so I, I don't I don't know how things are going to shake out. I do know right now what we're worried about is is that people are losing jobs and, and reducing spending, um, which has a downward price pressure on on products. So one of the concerns that we have right now is actually what we should start to think about is whether deflation is um, on the horizon, um, and you can expand monetary policy in order to fight that deflation. But if you if you mistime that and you inject too much money into the economy and it ends up actually increasing the amount of spending that's happening, um, which pushes prices up, you can cause some pretty significant inflation. Uh, and and as uh, I think over the next decade or so, we're really going to start to understand uh, the implications of all of the money that we've borrowed um, and whether there's a limit to, to what we can do um, through, through borrowing versus um, quantitative easing is what they call it, expanding the money supply. Uh, and, and what those ramifications are going to be. Yeah, it, I mean, it's an interesting time, and, and we will always we will look back on these times. We will draw. Some people will draw a conclusion and say, let's, let's say we go into a very serious recession that lasts five years from now. In 2050, half of the economists are going to look back and say that, the, that we didn't do enough to fight this, or if we look at Alaska and Alaska goes into recession – there's going to be half of the people that say that we didn't do enough to fight this. We could have saved it. And there's going to be half of the people that said, no, we pretty much caused that by our policies. That problem, that uh, philosophical change, that's never going to, that's never going to change. Um, Had a, had a great time talking with you today, Ed, hopefully talk to you again soon. And um, I guess nobody knows what's really, really going to happen here. Uncharted territory. So, It'll, it's a really neat natural experiment to watch. Thanks, Casey.